Welcome back to the Global and the Granite State podcast, a monthly program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. I'm really excited for this month's program as we dive into two of our upcoming event topics for this month, Turkey and Afghanistan. We will also hear from Howard Brodsky of CCA Global. He talks about the global power of cooperatives. Let's dive into our conversation with Dr. Melinda Negron-Gonzalez, who will be speaking at our Global Tipping Points event this Monday, March 4th. We are here with Associate Professor Melinda Negron-Gonzalez of UNH Manchester. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and where your interest in Turkey comes from? Sure. I have a PhD in political science and my area of specialization is comparative politics and international relations. And I started following Turkish politics as an undergrad, actually, when I became interested in the Kurdish conflict in Turkey. And so my dissertation back a long time ago, (laughs) I looked at the human rights issue in Turkey as it relates particularly to the Kurdish conflict. And I've since done some work on the women's rights movement in Turkey as well. And my international relations scholarship has focused on the diffusion of international norms, especially human rights norms. So human rights has been a recurring theme in my research. So I know that you spent some time last year in Turkey on a sabbatical. Can you talk a little bit about your time there? Sure. I had the opportunity to spend two and a half months in Turkey last year, which was a big year because they had presidential and parliamentary elections, and I was there for those. I was traveling around the country, mostly Istanbul, Ankara, and Diyarbakir, talking to parliamentarians, human rights activists, lawyers about the human rights situation in Turkey. For anyone who follows Turkey, they know that the human rights situation and democracy in general has really deteriorated in Turkey over the past several years. So I wanted to understand a little bit more about what people on the ground in Turkey are doing to challenge some of the Turkish government's more controversial counterterrorism measures. So it seems like there's not too much to talk about when it comes to Turkey. No, not at all. Not a lot going on (laughs) in that part of the world, generally. So (laughs) in just the past couple of years, you've had an ambassador assassinated in the capital, a coup attempt, Turkish security forces being indicted in the U.S. and having the charges quietly dropped, and the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So I guess my question really is, how are you going to talk about Turkey and keep it to the hour that we have for the event? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, particularly when it comes to talking about conflict and human rights in Turkey. We can be here until next week. There's a lot to talk about, but I'm going to really hone in on the last 35 years or so of Turkey's struggle with the Kurdish insurgency in the southeast and then really look at the counterterrorism policies that various Turkish governments have pursued over the past 35 years and then how human rights activists have challenged those counterterrorism policies. And that's when we'll turn our attention to the role of international law and international courts because the sort of tragic thing here is that Turkey is deeply embedded in the world's most robust regional human rights regime. It's under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights and human rights activists in Turkey have made great use of that court in challenging Turkey's counterterrorism policies. So I'm really going to focus on how the court has responded to those petitions by Turkish activists and what other tools are available to Turkish activists to challenge counterterrorism policies. 
So I know we've talked a little bit off the record about how you will be attending the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force on Iraq and Operation Inherent Resolve. Quite the mouthful. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that fits into your research? Sure. As someone who's been observing events in Turkey for the better part of two decades now, We need to better understand how the U.S. can contribute to stability in Iraq, where we are invited by the Iraqi government to help stabilize the situation, and also in Syria, where we are currently, though we've not been invited, and how Turkey fits into all of this. And so looking at America's role in Iraq and Syria, but sort of broadening the lens and looking at the role that Turkey may or may not play, and how Kurdish politics is at the center of all of this stuff that's been unfolding in Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Can you tell us a little bit about that challenge of the Turkish government with the Kurdish forces, particularly the ones who have in the past and some currently allied with the U.S. in the fight in Syria? Sure. So the problem the U.S. finds itself in today is that we have seriously angered our NATO ally Turkey by supporting the YPG forces in northern Syria. So Turkey has had an ongoing armed conflict against the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is a Turkish-Kurdish insurgent group that in the past was seeking a fully separate independent state and now currently looks simply for some autonomy in Turkey. And they have links to the YPG. What exactly those organizational links are is unclear, but there are clear ideological links and some kind of organizational relationship between the PKK and the YPG forces in northern Syria. And so Turkey sees the YPG forces as simply an extension of the PKK, and it sees the YPG and Kurdish autonomy in northern Syria as an existential threat to Turkey. And so the U.S. has tried to figure out how to sort of thread the needle and maintain a relationship with the YPG while also keeping its NATO ally, Turkey, happy and allaying Turkey's fears about Kurdish autonomy in northern Syria. And what would your assessment of their ability to thread that needle has been? We've not done a very good job there. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is a critical moment because the U.S. plans to withdraw, it seems, in April. And so people on the ground in Syria are scrambling to figure out who or what is going to fill the vacuum once the U.S. forces leave. And for the YPG, they are in the most vulnerable position because they need to figure out whether or not they want to work with the Assad regime and that may or may not protect them from Turkey or what other options are available to them. Turkey, in the meantime, would really like to take over those areas where the YPG forces have been dominant and bring in their own proxies in that area. So it remains to be seen whether the YPG, which by the way, has been through its PYD leadership sort of courting various Western governments to perhaps fill the gap. It remains to be seen if they're going to be successful in doing so. If not, the Turks are serious about filling that space and really mitigating the influence of the PYD and the YPG forces. Okay, so it seems like there's a lot to unpack in Turkey. I was reading that they will be hosting municipal elections on March 31st, and that Erdogan is promising historic wins for his coalition. Any sense of how this might change things in the country? And also, what faith do you have in the Turkish electoral system? (laughs) 
I'll start with the latter question first. <laughs> you know, Turkey has a history of free and fair elections going back decades. Unfortunately, the past several elections have been mired by, let's call them irregularities. And so it will probably be the case that this election will see the same type of irregularities we've seen in the previous elections. So I don't have a lot of faith in that. I think AKP will do well in certain areas of the country. It remains to be seen what will happen in the southeast region, where the HDP, which is the pro-Kurdish party, tends to do very well in municipal elections. I think that with respect to the broader regional developments in Syria specifically, we can expect to hear more belligerent rhetoric from Erdogan up until at least the March 31st elections. That plays very well with his base. And so I think even if Turkey is not in a position to actually move forward, let's say on its threats against Manbij, he will continue to say things and make these kinds of statements because there is an election and because that plays very well to the nationalist base in Turkey. Any bright spots to be looking for in the country? Any glimmers of hope? Yes, I think. I hope. Perhaps this is just wishful thinking on my part. But once the election season is over and Erdogan feels secure, because let's face it, he really has consolidated his power in a brand new regime, this you know super executive presidential system, there might be a chance in the coming years for reviving the moribund Kurdish peace process. And... If Erdogan wants to do that, he is powerful enough in that system that he's created to push something like that through. That's wishful thinking. (laughs) And there is this ongoing debate among Turkey watchers about whether or not Erdogan will be less authoritarian once the election season is over. He's an authoritarian at heart. This is who he is fundamentally as a leader. So I don't know that he's going to change dramatically. But I think that some of this authoritarian that we see coming from Erdogan is in part due to him feeling like he's in an insecure spot before these elections. And so with the electoral calculations out of the picture, maybe stability can return to Turkey. Not not full-blown liberal democracy. That's not happening anytime soon. But maybe some stability and maybe it opens up a space to revisit the Kurdish peace process in the coming years. Maybe. Well, here's to hoping. Again, we're here with Associate Professor Melinda Negron Gonzalez. If you are interested in hearing more about what she has to say in regards to Turkey and the wider region, please do check out our website at www.wacnh.org. And you can register for our Global Tipping Points event with her on March 4th. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. CCA Global is a local company with an international reach. I still remember the first time I saw their sign and wondered what they did. Here are some insights into their global work. are here with the chairman and co-CEO of CCA Global, Howard Brodsky. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about CCA Global, how it got its start, and what you guys do? 
Sure. CCA Global is a cooperative, and I founded it with a dear friend of mine uh, almost now 33 years ago. And originally it was a cooperative of floor covering stores to give them the scale and leverage to compete against national chains. And we realized after about four or five years that our skill set really was not in floor covering, but it was in really giving scale to family businesses to compete with national companies and have them succeed. And so our original goal was to have 300 floor covering stores, and we quickly exceeded to have 1,000 floor covering stores in four countries. And But now we have 15 different cooperatives in 15 different industries scanning four countries. Can you tell us a little bit about the cooperative model, what that looks like? Sure. So there are many different types of cooperatives, from food cooperatives to electric cooperatives, and we're in what they call purchase or business cooperatives. The one consistent thing with all cooperatives, they were owned by the members. Even though I founded the company, I'm chairman and co-CEO of the company, actually I don't own a share of the company. So we're about an $11 billion company, and it's all owned by the members. So it's owned by the individual members that belong to the individual cooperatives. So whether it's a floor covering cooperative, we have bike stores, ski stores, lighting stores, general contractors, they all own the individual cooperatives. And how long has CCA been working internationally? What drove you to take this model to the international market? Yes, what we found is actually that Canada was naturally so close. It's international, but I almost don't because it's like an extension of the United States. Right. So we, we went to Canada fairly early on because it was just natural and synergy. And then we had some stores in Australia and New Zealand come to us and said, you know, we looked at your model and boy, we'd love to have it. So we opened up operations in Australia and New Zealand. And actually, we advised some co-ops in England also for many years. So what benefits do you see to your company as well as New Hampshire in general being more engaged internationally? So for our company, it, it definitely gives us uh, added breadth and, and room for growth. Even though, you know, obviously, the United States is the biggest economy in the world, there are many other economies where cooperatives are very, very strong in, in most countries. So it gives us extra scale and ability to leverage our growth and help other family businesses. And for New Hampshire, we have brought many people to New Hampshire from around the world because we have suppliers in China. We have suppliers in Vietnam. Our members that have come here from New Zealand and Australia and Canada and has, I think, brought some international flavor to New Hampshire and having them understand what cooperatives are. So we were talking a little bit beforehand about your Cooperatives for a Better World program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So what I realized many years ago, Tim, is that cooperatives are not well understood by a lot of people. They understand the word. They don't understand that it comes in so many different sectors and has such scale. So there are a billion members of cooperatives around the world. 250 million people work at cooperatives. And one out of every six people is a member of a cooperative around the world. Many people, not just in the United States, but in other countries, don't understand the breadth and the sectors. And so we developed Cooperatives for a Better World to really better tell that message and for citizens all over to understand the cooperative movement and the power it has to bring equality and social justice while still being capitalistic. So I always call cooperative our capitalism with a conscience. And we now operate uh, Cooperative Better World in 14 countries, including China, India, Argentina, Australia, England. So in a lot of the major economic powerhouses around the world, our nonprofit is operating. Yeah, I'm sure you have a lot of really interesting cooperatives that you've built over the years through both CCA Global and Cooperatives for a Better World. Do you have a favorite or, or one really that sticks out as, as a particularly interesting one? Well, I think there's a lot. So one is, because it's connected to New Hampshire in some ways, there's a shea butter cooperative in Tonga, West Africa called Alafia. And 
a lot of women used to farm shea butter, they still do, in a lot of African countries. And they were getting very little good through the goods because they would they had to bring it to market that day. They didn't have a way to scale it or brand it. And so they formed a cooperative. And now there's 400 women that formed a cooperative called the Lafia. They make four times, 400% what wow. they used to make. They have health insurance. They have vacations. They have sent their kids to college. And the shea butter that they make is sold in Concord, New Hampshire, the food co-op. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You've received a number of prestigious awards, the New Hampshire Business Leader of the Year, Ernst & Young's Retail Entrepreneur of the Year, but to name just a few. What has made you so successful in this business? Well, I think cooperatives, if you have a good heart and a good mind, cooperatives have made most people. <laughs> I, I think it's one I have a great passion. Mm -hmm. I think anything to be successful, you need a passion. I have a passion for what we do because I've seen what it's done to lift up others, mm -hmm. how it has protected family businesses, literally helped them not only survive but thrive. And I've seen its format of cooperatives that can be applied to almost any sector. And, you know, when a family business goes out in the community, that whole connection is lost, that, that not only that income is lost, they're going to work for somewhere for an hourly work, but their connection to the community. Most of those people in family businesses are the church leaders, are the community leaders, they're the ones coaching the soccer teams. And so protecting the family businesses, I think is paramount, not just in America, but I think throughout the world, and giving people opportunity. Co-ops equalize opportunity for people. And a lot of times, if you don't have scale, you don't have opportunity. And cooperatives give people the scale they need to compete with large organizations in the world today. Yeah, it's amazing that you look at the economic numbers and the number of small businesses compared to large businesses is overwhelming. And it is. To have that disparity of economies of scale makes it really difficult. So I think you're really doing yeah. some great work. Well, it's right? interesting. Yeah, I agree. During the recession, 25% of all the companies, industries we dealt with went out of business. Mm -hmm. And only 2% of people that were a member of our co-op went out of business, oh, wow. which was quite incredible. So you have met with several of our international visitor leadership program groups in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about why you take the time to do this and the benefits you see from it? Well, first of all, I, I find it fascinating. I think hopefully they find it fascinating because <laughs> our economic model is, while we're cooperative, we're $11 billion, so we have scale right. and provide interest. But I have found that we met with people in South Korea and, and some of the countries that were split off from Russia and, you know, just a lot of different countries. And I think, first of all, it's fascinating for me and our other to find out how they're operating their economic structure in those countries, which is sometimes very, very different than ours. And just to meet people that are from different cultures. We had some people from Thailand and that were part of the university. And it's ironic, four months later, we had 200 people, associates of ours, go to Thailand. Oh, wow. <laughs> they came here and we had 200 people go there. Yeah. You know, I usually have some of our other leaders, executives sit in, and, and they find it fascinating to have dialogue with people from different countries and understand what are their challenges, what's their economic model, how is it different from capitalism in the United States, and what's good and what's bad. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you can learn so much from international dialogue. I think that the visitors, the feedback we always yeah. get is that they find this to be an amazing meeting, that the yeah. CEO of a major yeah. international corporation yeah. would take the time to yeah. meet with them. They they always yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and another great thank you for, for all the time <laughs> that you've spent with our, yeah. our groups. So finally, how has the U.S. government trade policies positively or negatively impacted your business? Well, it has negatively impacted us because, first, I, I do believe in fair trade. I think it's good for everyone. It can't be off-balanced by way, but a lot of our products are made out of the country and, and vice versa. We sell things to other parts of the world. 
And the tariff is put on, just even the initial 10% tariff mm -hmm. was put on products. Some of the products cannot even be made here. It wasn't like they were taking products, you know, steel, not that I was in favor of it, but, you know, it was made here. Some of the products they put tariffs on aren't even made in the United States. And so it seems kind of foolish they would put tariffs on. And so it, it has not hurt it terribly. And if the tariffs, if they bring resolution to it, and which looks like they will in the next 30 days or so, it won't have long-term effect. Yeah. Anything else you want to chat about? Well, just one of the things I think we're very proud of is our ability to enter the social world, which mm -hmm. we have a, a child care group that we have over now 20,000 child care centers that are part of our organization in, I think, now 33 states that we support by having a platform that we give discounted food, training, HR help, every bit to run those child care centers to help hundreds of thousands of children. Yeah, that's great. And I know we've had a couple of our groups meet with Denise to talk right. about that. And again, they're A, blown away that we, we need these services yeah. and B, the amount of work that you guys are doing right. on that issue. Right. So we're, we're very proud to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you again. We are here yeah. with Chairman and CEO Howard Brodsky of CCA Global. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy your time in Florida. Thank you very much, Tim. Finally, and most excitingly, we did our first ever over-the-phone interview. Catherine Brown will be joining us for our third and final Global Tipping Points program of the spring on March 19th. Here is a little preview of what she will present on. Joining us on the phone from her travels to Indianapolis and Cincinnati, we have the president and CEO of Global Ties US, Catherine Brown, with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tim. I'm excited to get there. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your role with Global Ties US? Yeah, sure. So I, I run Global Ties US. We are a nonprofit partner of the US Department of State to ensure that we are facilitating effective exchange program for the State Department. We primarily support a network of more than 80 nonprofits throughout the United States that host the visitors that come to the United States, the best and the brightest around the world in a variety of fields, whether it be politics or journalism, environmental science, health, higher education. They come and get a real three-dimensional view of the United States by going to to one of 85 cities, and our partners cover all 50 states. So we're incredibly proud of our network, which includes the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Yeah, we love hosting our international guests here in New Hampshire. They bring such a great, unique view and experience to the state that would not be possible without such a wonderful exchange program. So you will be visiting New Hampshire on March 19th to talk about your research into the war in Afghanistan and the effect that American media has played in the conflict. Can you give us a little teaser about what your focus will be and why this is important? Yeah, so I first got into diplomacy and exchanges when I was a young public diplomacy officer at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. And there was a couple of things that really fascinated me. One was the impact that exchange programs were having on the professional development of Afghan civil society. It's one of the kind of unknown, better stories about the U.S. engagement and Western engagement in the country is this incredible community of journalists and activists and NGO leaders working on vital issues like women's empowerment and minority rights in the country. And so I, I was really taken with that. And also, I was really interested in the stories that were being created about Afghanistan at the time by American journalists and, and how that was being received inside the country. Often the way that Western journalists and specifically 
American journalists tend to frame stories through a security lens and talking about kind of putting the United States at the center of the story. So they're talking about Afghanistan, but they're really talking about U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. And while there was this community of Afghan journalists that was being created and professionalized for the first time in a, in a long time that there was an objective professional press in the country, I became quite taken with how the narratives of the American foreign correspondents were resonating or not with those Afghan journalists. And this real tension between how America was framing Afghanistan and how the Afghans wanted their country to be framed and understood and projected to the rest of the world. So it's that tension there that really led me into kind of some deep, deep study over the course of probably about 10 years, I think, from working on the issue for my dissertation, for my doctorate, and then kind of picking it back up again and doing some fairly recent research to make my dissertation more readable into this book. And, and really the takeaway to answer your question is that our journalists, especially American journalists, have a lot of power in shaping the world for an American audience, but also for a global one. They really are actors in international relations. They aren't necessarily objective observers. They're really shaping the conditions and the stories and the frameworks within which major decisions like war and peace are made. So the really the big takeaway is this critical role that journalists play in, in war and peace and kind of flips the idea that they are essentially objective storytellers. Yeah, I'm always so amazed at the misperceptions that some of our international visitors have about the U.S. that they've seen from their own media or from the cultural diplomacy kind of stuff, movies, music, etc. It's always really interesting to see how media of all types can really affect people and how they view different countries. I think that's right, and I think that's why exchange programs are so essential, like in-person programs, because they're the only real vehicle to try to disabuse people of ideas and misperceptions that they might gain uh, the press or popular culture, as you say. I wanted to talk a little bit about how the American media really shaped this war in Afghanistan and what lasting effects you see from that shaping. The U.S. experience with Afghanistan, you know, of course, it didn't start with 9-11, but if you look at the way that they covered the country before. It was really pegged to how the U.S. press normally covers the rest of the world. Unless there's a story that is tied to U.S. national interests or something that happens that really shocks the Western world, um, like shocks the norm and culture of the Western world or the United States, normally the world isn't really explained to American readers. You rarely will get stories that make the front page or top stories of news channels. So normally the way that the U.S. journalists approach the world is that they look to the presidency to really understand what the agenda is for American foreign policy, and they take their marching orders accordingly. If Syria is, is top of mind for the White House than it is for the press. If there's a major conference or a major summit that the president is involved in, well, then it's going to get coverage. The president is the main agenda setter for American news, especially when it comes to foreign affairs issues. So the coverage of Afghanistan, you know, before 9-11, you did have some New York Times reporters, and there's an AP reporter that were in the country, but they were following a couple of stories that did kind of put the U.S. at the center. And one was that there was an aid group called Shelter Now that was in the country, and there was a couple of Americans who were kidnapped. 
So there was some coverage about that. Also earlier that year been the destruction of these Buddhas that, you know, were thousands of years old that had been destroyed by the Taliban because they didn't want there to be any kind of idolatry of the human form. And so they blew up the Buddhas of Bamiyan. It's really shocked the Western world that there would be such destruction of history and culture. So these were kind of the main stories. And when, when 9-11 happened, there was some journalists in the country. But really the way that the country took hold of Americans' imagination was because this was the country in which the destruction of 9-11 was imagined. This is where Osama bin Laden was. This was where Al-Qaeda was. There was this image that was portrayed that this was a very failed state under a theocracy that was brutal to the Afghans, especially to women. And so we all got this image of this place that desperately needed to be rescued. So that image then, when you walk it forward and see the overwhelming support by Congress for the United States to invade Afghanistan, you know, through very kind of wide war powers through the global war on terror, more than 90% of the American public agreed that the United States should enter Afghanistan. It was kind of this like no-brainer almost. The press believed it, the public believed it, and that it was worthy of our troops, you know, it was worthy of our development dollars. And they also, though, thought it was something that was going to be quick. The U.S. was going to be able to go in and both save the country from the Taliban, uproot terrorism, and do really humanitarian good at the same time. It was going to lift people out of poverty, let women leave their homes, bring education to the country, bring roads and infrastructure. And so there was really the dynamic was that it set up the United States to be the savior of Afghanistan. And in the beginning, there was a lot of hope in the reporting. This is at 2002, and you had this really elegant figure arrive in Hamid Karzai, who was an absolute darling of the American press at the time. He was voted the chicest man on the planet by Esquire magazine. He was up there with the top dressed men in the world, along with like Jay-Z and Tom Brady. And so the American press really embraced him as a figure of modernity and of just elegance, and he was an ultimate statesman that could bring Afghanistan into the 21st century. So this story began this way with the country, and then the story went away for a while. The war in Iraq began, the press attention shifted, and there wasn't much coverage of the country until things started to turn south about in 2006. And then you saw President Obama come in and fix his attention on the country in a way that was very different from the Bush years. The Bush years were all about the success of Afghanistan and the success of U.S. intervention. And by the time President Obama came in, the story was different. Afghanistan was failing. It was that we took our eyes off the ball, that it needed more troop investment. It needed more development investment. And so there was going to be this military and civilian surge. And the story of failure of the Karzai administration began to take shape in the American press. And that's when things started to go south. We all know that the war has raged on for almost two decades, and from what I read in here, there's no quick solution to resolve this conflict. Do you have any rays of hope for the future? I think that there's definitely good news in the sense that the new generation of Afghans is absolutely extraordinary. This is a generation that started living during civil war times and during Taliban times. And when the U.S. came in and the International Security Systems Forces came in, there was a lot of money that went into civil society development, a lot of money into exchanges, a lot of money into training. And so it really gave the space for a new generation of civil society actors to emerge. The biggest 
dilemma for the U.S. has been, how does this end? When do we actually walk away? President Obama put a timeline on, you know, wanting to pull out in 2014, and that didn't really happen. Of course, there wasn't a complete withdrawal. There was also some concerns amongst the development and definitely diplomacy community that a too premature withdrawal, kind of like what happened in Iraq, would create the conditions for now, not just the Taliban, not just you know, al-Qaeda, but also ISIS to really get a foothold in the country. But I think where the consensus is forming in the policy community is that there need to be the direct talks with the Taliban. So of course, we have those talks happening right now. The Taliban does not want to negotiate with the Afghan government. They want to negotiate with the United States directly. And I think that there's some reasons to be hopeful that negotiations can bring kind of a peaceful conclusion to this conflict and, and kind of chart a clear path forward for the role of the United States. But there's also some real legitimate concerns about bringing back the Taliban or letting them legitimately you know, have certain control over certain swaths of the country, what that's going to do for all that we fought for, for human rights, and all that we fought for to have a pluralistic civil society there. There is some division, I think, among the U.S. policy community that has been focusing on Afghanistan for so long now, you know, nearly 18 years. But I think that the consensus is that the only way to get out of this is essentially to go through it, and you need to do that through negotiation. I think everyone's just kind of bracing themselves to understand, well, what is the aftermath of that going to actually look like? And I think that's what, you know, I'm definitely hoping for because I've seen such tremendous progress in that area. Well, it's always good to hear that progress is being made and, and hopefully we can come to a resolution soon. So thank you again for, for joining us. We are here with the president and CEO of Global Ties US, Catherine Brown, talking about her upcoming Global Tipping Points discussion on the role of American media in the war in Afghanistan. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. We're so excited to host you on March 19th at UNH Manchester for this interesting and important discussion. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to being there and talking with you all more in person. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you at our upcoming events in March.